0: Thanks, Michael. Well, it's really great to be back here again. Um, it's been over a year. Some of you look um, like familiar faces, so we've probably met. Um, as Michael said, my name is David Rapp, and we are planting a new church in Golden. And so if you know anybody in Golden, we would love to connect with them. We'd love to meet with them, whether they're people that you think would be interested In being a part of a new church or people that have no interest in church whatsoever, we'd love to get together with them. Um, I'm joined this morning with some friends uh, from our core group. So we're up kind of exploring what you guys are doing and learning from you. Um, My wife is here with me, as well as our youngest daughter. We've got a son who's at Colorado State up the road. And then our middle daughter uh, just graduated high school, and she's doing a GAP program and actually just arrived in Bali, Indonesia, This morning. Um, So, in preparation for that, I rewatched the Liam Neeson movie Taken. Um, (laughs) If you've seen that, about a father whose daughter is abducted while she's traveling internationally. And unfortunately, I realized that I don't have a particular set of skills that would help me reacquire her. So, um, I'll have to come up with plan B. Um, But if we look tired, it's because the last couple nights we've been up throughout the night texting with her two nights ago because of weather delays in Denver. She almost missed her flight to Taipei, but she made it, and then early, early in the middle of the night this morning, uh, we were texting to make sure that she got there okay and got through customs, and uh, if you've ever gone through customs, you know that there's two questions that they are primarily interested in. First, who are you, Um, and then second, why are you here? What are you doing here? And my daughter is on a tourist visa, she's uh, volunteering in wildlife management uh, in Bali, so... Um, So that's exciting. I wonder uh, if Jesus were to go through customs, um, what he would say about who he is and why he is here, why he was in our world. And some of you probably have various ideas about who Jesus is and and why he came, Uh, maybe because of things that you've seen or heard from friends of yours, people you know, who claim to be followers of Jesus? Um, maybe you've got ideas like Jesus came uh, to tell us how to be good people, or He came to condemn all the bad people, or He came to take authority and power and control, or He came to overthrow the government. But I wonder what Jesus Himself would say if He was asked, You know, who are you and why are you here? Why did you come? And the good news is that we don't have to guess, we don't have to wonder, because Jesus himself tells us in his word who he is and why he came. And I know you all have been making your way through the New Testament gospel of Mark, and I've been asked this morning to preach on the passage we just heard, Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through verse, chapter 9, verse 1, and also to look at Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, And really, the whole first half of Mark's gospel is addressing that first customs question, who are you? Who are you, Jesus? And then the second half is really addressing the question of why did you come? Why are you here? And this passage that we're looking at really is kind of like um, the transition from the first half to the second half, where we transition from who is Jesus to what did he come to do? And in light of that, um, what does it mean to follow Jesus or to be what the Bible calls a disciple? And really everything that Jesus says and does reveals more to us of who he is. And so as you've been walking through Mark, I know you've already heard some of who Jesus is. Mark tells us from the very beginning um, in the very first verse of this gospel who Jesus is. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the son of god and then later, later jesus heals a man who is paralyzed and he forgives his sins which is something that only god can do and so jesus is claiming that he himself is god and then i know more recently you guys looked at mark chapter 4 where jesus and his disciples were in a boat and this huge storm came up at sea and they were afraid for their lives but jesus calms the turning waters and turns them into glass And his followers look at each other and look at Jesus and say, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? And yet the disciples uh, throughout Mark are very slow to see and to understand just who Jesus is. And the question of who this guy is really comes to a climax in the verses right before what we just heard read. And the question of who Jesus is really tells us what it means to follow him. And that's the question that each of us is presented with. Will we follow Jesus? And even after you become a follower of Jesus, someone who would call yourself a Christian, you're presented thousands of times every day with the question of, will I follow Jesus in this particular situation? Will I follow Jesus no matter what he says, no matter where he seems to be leading, because I know that he loves me and I believe that he really has my best interests in mind. And so this morning, whether you are convinced of who Jesus is or whether you're really pretty skeptical, uh, this passage speaks to you. So let me ask this question. Is there anyone in your life who can contradict you? Is there anyone in your life who you are willing to always listen to no matter what they say? Is there anyone in your life who you're willing to follow no matter where they might ask you to go? What about Jesus? Who Jesus is determines what it looks like to follow him. And Jesus directs our attention to his identity. In the verses right before this, um, Jesus and his disciples are going through the villages in the region of Caesarea Philippi, and the question comes up of, of who Jesus is. And Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they offer some different examples. Some people say you're John the Baptist. Some say that you are Elijah or one of the other prophets. But Jesus looks at them and he says, okay, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answers on behalf of them and says, you are the Christ. You're the one who is going to come and rescue your people. And so Jesus immediately tells them, hey, don't tell anybody about that. Because this title Christ would have created all kinds of expectations in people's minds. But the disciples would have been filled with excitement, with hope. Finally, the hero that they've been waiting for has come. Finally, finally the one has come who's Who's going to overthrow the the Roman government and army that is occupying our land and oppressing us? Finally, we're going to be liberated. Finally, we're going to have the power. Finally, everything is going to be right in the way that it should be. And Mark tells us in verse 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man, and that title, Son of Man, um, would have been somewhat familiar to them. They would have known that the Old Testament prophet Daniel used that language destroyed. And so their idea of what this Son of Man would be like was full of power and authority and dominion and taking control. But what Jesus says next is not at all what they expected. Mark tells us, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. So immediately after Jesus is finally acknowledged as the Messiah, the long-awaited rescuer, he starts talking about suffering and defeat and being rejected. And a rejected Messiah would have blown all the categories that these Jewish people had. It wasn't compatible with their hopes and their dreams. The Messiah was supposed to be victorious, not a loser How could the hero be defeated? How could that possibly be part of God's plan? And yet Jesus says it's a necessity, not an option, but the Son of Man must suffer, be rejected, die, and be raised. And we might ask, why? Why is this necessary? Why isn't there another way? Why must this happen? And one answer is simply to fulfill what the Bible says and God's plan, But another another answer to that is that these things must happen in order for God to be both just and merciful. Because God can't simply sweep sin under the rug and just accept us anyway. Jesus had to pay so that we could be forgiven. He had to die in order to pay the penalty for our sin and Rebellion, see, forgiveness always comes at a cost. If you think about it, if somebody, your friend, your, your little brother, uh, drops your phone and the screen cracks, you know, well, what are you gonna do? You can, you can make your friend pay for it, or you can just say, oh, you know what, that's, that's okay. Don't worry about it, I'll take care of that. But if you do that, you pay the cost yourself. Whether you pay to have your screen fixed or you pay simply to have a broken phone, Um, somebody has to pay. And the cross was an absolute necessity because someone has to pay for our sins. We can't be saved any other way. And Jesus came in order to pay for our sins so that we wouldn't have to. Jesus' death says that, that we're so bad that he had to die. There's no other way for us to be rescued. And yet at the same time, Jesus' death says that we are so loved that he was willing to die, that God was willing to send his own son to die for us. The fact that Jesus dies willingly, he knows it's coming, and he walks intentionally toward the cross shows us just how much he must love us. Many of us, including myself, Struggle with people pleasing. Some of you, I imagine, desperately need the approval of others. You need to know that other people like you and accept you. And that's the reason probably why some of you have a difficult time ever saying no to anything because you're desperately afraid of disappointing anyone. It can make us feel insecure. Will I get the approval that I need? But here's the thing. Jesus' love actually melts our insecurity. Jesus' love is the thing that can free you from that because when you are secure in Jesus' love, then you no longer so desperately need the love and approval of everyone else. When you no longer need other people to love you, then you actually can be freed to love them regardless of what you might be getting back in return at the moment. You're able to love people not because of what you need from them, not because of what you can get from them. Well, Peter doesn't like what what he's hearing Jesus say. Jesus is threatening Peter's agenda, and so Peter rebukes Jesus. But Jesus, in turn, turns around and he rebukes Jesus. Peter, and he calls him Satan, which isn't a very pleasant thing to be called. Um, But if you're familiar with with the story, um, Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, and that's recorded in Matthew chapter 4. And essentially, Satan is tempting Jesus to take a bloodless path to glory, to get glory without going to the cross. And Peter's essentially doing the same thing. Peter is trying to encourage Jesus uh, not to go to the cross, to deter him from his mission. Peter's acting like he knows better than God. And sometimes we're inclined to think the same way. In verse 33, Jesus says to him, You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. See, Peter can't imagine that, that suffering, denial, weakness could possibly lead to ultimate happiness. That doesn't compute. And it's hard for us to believe and imagine that Jesus might contradict our own agendas for our life. So let me ask you this. What what heart commitments or aspirations of ours, of yours, might possibly be being challenged by what Jesus says in this passage? Maybe for some of us, it's that we want to follow Jesus, and we also want to be very comfortable. Or we want to be Christians, and we also want to be able to pursue all of our dreams, hopes, and goals, no matter what. Maybe for some of us, we are radically committed to protecting our own interests and our own rights Or we're committed to our security, physical and financial. Maybe we say, Jesus, I want to follow you, but don't stand in the way of my career path. Jesus, I want to follow you, but you need to know that the most important things to me are making sure that my family has everything that we need and that we want. And Jesus says to us in verse 34, and calling the crowd to him with the disciples, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And that deny yourself means not to be controlled by your own self-interest. It's a call to I- abandon our identity. Maybe the things that provide us with security. Our own focused efforts to protect and secure our own interests. To deny ourselves simply means to stop focusing on ourselves. To put Christ's agenda before our own with regard to our time, our energy, our money. Denying ourselves includes sometimes giving up our rights rather than fighting for them. To stop trying to be autonomous in control of everything. Jesus calls us to give up our, our self focused agendas in order to embrace his kingdom. Priorities, and the reality is, is that we're we're constantly drawn to find our identity and our value in what we can achieve, in what we can produce. But Jesus turns our performance-based sense of identity upside down. See, being a follower of Jesus, as I know you know, means having an identity that is received rather than an identity that is achieved, and an identity that's based on Jesus and the gospel. And here's the paradox of the Christian life, the paradox of following Jesus. He says in verses 35 through 37, he says, "'For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul?' For what can a man give in return for his soul or his life? And that Greek word life, psyche, means identity or personality or selfhood. It's living for yourself and for your own fulfillment and seeking your own happiness above all else that actually leads to losing true, real, eternal life. If we try to grab on and hold it, we actually end up losing it. And you can probably think of, Lots of illustrations or people that you know that through their grasping and trying to hold on to something, to their agenda, they actually end up losing it. Back in the spring of 1980, Mount St. Helens blew up, and it wasn't a huge surprise. For two months, there had been earthquakes, and the mountain had been venting steam, and everybody who lived around Mount St. Helens had been encouraged to evacuate, but there was a man, Harry Randall Truman, who owned the Mount St. Helens Lodge, and he was right in the middle of the danger zone. And you can imagine if you owned property, if you had this big lodge, that it might be difficult to walk away from that, walk away from what was your life, what you had created, what was maybe your identity. But because he refused Leave when the mountain blew up, he lost his life, and he and his lodge are buried under 150 feet of volcanic debris. The paradox is that you'll never be happy if you focus on making yourself happy, you'll never be accepted by God if you try to earn his acceptance, you'll never find real fulfillment if you focus on yourself. And so that's the paradox that Jesus is telling us about, that it's actually giving up our rights. It's actually giving up our freedom, our self-focused pursuits, our attempts to secure our own happiness. It's actually giving up those things that is the pathway to real security, real happiness, and what the Bible calls salvation. So what is it that you're holding on to as the source of your identity or your life? Maybe not in an ultimate sense, but what are the things that kind of have a grab on your heart? Different cultures have different things that are viewed as the source of value. So what are the things in our culture or in the world around you, or maybe the voice in your own head that that is telling you, you need to have this in order to be valuable. You need to have this in order to be fulfilled. Maybe for some of you, it's having family, or it's having children. For others of you, it might be having not just a career, but a really important, prestigious career. No matter where you live or who you are, there's always a temptation toward a performance-based identity. The things that have a grip of our hearts are often the things that we're most afraid of losing. So where are you most afraid of losing something? Where are you most afraid of experiencing suffering? Maybe the thing you're most afraid of losing is your freedom to recreate and do whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it. Or maybe for some of you, it's the fear of losing your freedom to pursue romance with whoever, whenever, however you want. Where would it be most challenging for Jesus to contradict you and your own personal pursuit of happiness? Maybe it's where you get to live or who you're called to live around and pursue relationships with. Well, Peter rebukes Jesus because Jesus is not acting according to Peter's agenda. Peter's agenda did not include suffering and denying himself. What agendas are you similarly uh, afraid of having confronted? Is not being limited in what you're able to do of the utmost importance to you? Are you willing to pursue career opportunities at any cost, no matter what it might do to other aspects of your life or people in your life or the community that God has given to you? Are you willing to walk over people or or walk away from people because you feel like they stand in the way of your happiness, your sense of fulfillment? Jesus says that following him, which is really just another way of talking about being and living as a Christian, following him involves a willingness to give up our own autonomy, to give up, in a sense, control of our lives. See, if Jesus is a king, which he says he is, then we have to listen to and obey everything that he says, even if it contradicts us, even if it isn't exactly what we would like. But here's the thing. Jesus is not just a king, but he's a king on a cross, a king who came to die for people like you and like me. And his death is the greatest demonstration possible of his love for you. And if that's the case, then you can trust him. Wherever he might ask you to follow him, he invites us to lose our lives in order that we might gain them. Jesus says in Matthew 6, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you as well. Some of you may be familiar with a missionary who lived in the last century, a man named Jim Elliott, who served in South America amongst the Aka Indians and he died a martyr's death. And he said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. Jesus says in verse 38, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. So if we're ashamed of Jesus, Jesus says he'll be ashamed of us. And that's a terrible thought. But if we trust him and if we follow him, we can be assured that Jesus will look at us and say, well done, Good and faithful servant. And Jesus tells us, he promises us that he is coming in glory with the holy angels. King Jesus is coming in glory. And that's the exciting thing. And that's where Jesus moves in chapter 9, verse 1, when he says, Some of you won't taste death until you see the kingdom of God coming in power. And what did he mean? Well, there's lots of possibilities, but one thing he doesn't mean is he doesn't mean none of you are going to die until Jesus comes back for the second time, because obviously they all did die, and we're still waiting for Jesus to come back. Um, Jesus would have been wrong if that's what he meant, and Mark probably wouldn't have had a reason to record Jesus being wrong, but Jesus is probably referring to his transfiguration, which is about to take place in the next few verses probably also to his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his pouring out his Holy Spirit at Pentecost, maybe all of these things. But the point point is that the kingdom is coming. Jesus is bringing a glorious kingdom, and he wants us to be assured of that, to be able to follow him through suffering, through denial, to the cross, with the sure hope that Jesus is victorious, and we get to share in that. And ultimately, where Jesus is leading us and asking us to follow him is to a party. So what if I told you that Jesus was throwing a party with all the best drinks and all the best food and all the drinks were on him, and you're invited? Before you RSVP, would you want to check the the Facebook invite just to see who else is coming? What I'm going to read for us uh, briefly, Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, where Jesus asks another man to leave everything and to follow him. This is Mark 2, beginning in verse 13. And he, Jesus, went went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. but sinners. So Jesus, who are you and why are you here? Jesus is telling us, this is why I came. Not for the righteous, not for the good people who have it all together, but I came for sinners. So who are you most afraid of being associated with? Are there kinds of people that you don't want other people to think or know that you are friends with? You know, when a person chooses who to be friends with or who to be associated with, they know that it reflects on them in powerful ways. Politicians know this, which is why there's always a lot of discussion about who a presidential candidate is going to choose as a running mate because whoever they choose to associate with is going to reflect on them. And so people tend to distance themselves from others who say or do things that would reflect negatively on them. So what about Jesus? What kind of people does Jesus want to be around? What kind of people is Jesus willing and interested in being associated with? Well, early in Jesus's ministry here, he he picks out the people who are going to be his closest followers, the people who are going to spend the most time with him, the people who he's most going to be associated with. And here we get to meet a man named Levi, who is also Matthew, who wrote, The New Testament book called Matthew, and he meets him in a tax booth. So who is this guy and why does Jesus seek him out? Well, we know that he's a a tax collector. He's involved in a profession that was despised because it involved him collecting taxes, working for a, a local ruler named Herod Antipas, who was in collaboration with the Roman Empire, who was the occupying force. And loyal Jews hated the romans they hated the roman oppression they hated anybody who was working for them and they would have hated this guy levi because his profession involved extortion taking as much money as he could from them cheating his fellow jewish people he would have been seen as a traitor and people would not want to be around him you can probably think of categories of people in your own life in our own culture That might be viewed similarly. What about Jesus? What is Jesus like? Who does he wanna associate with? Well, we see that Jesus goes straight to Levi. Jesus initiates with him, and Jesus says to him, Follow me. Come be with me where I am. He shows this man love and grace and acceptance. He was despised and rejected, and yet Jesus comes to him and extends welcome. And how does Levi respond? We're told, and he rose and followed him. Immediately, there's a party. Levi invites Jesus to his home. He throws this big party, and who does he invite? All the other tax collectors and sinners. And just reflect on this. Mark tells us that there were many who followed him. The people who flocked around Jesus were not the people who thought they had it all together. They were the people who were known publicly as as sinners, And they're all there to celebrate. They're reclining, so it's a special feast. Jesus is at a party with a crowd full of sinners. Sometimes people wrongly believe that Jesus welcomes people to his party who have it all together. That Jesus welcomes the good people. And if we think that, it's easy for us to be offended by who we see Jesus hanging out with. Mark tells us, about some of the religious people who got wind of this party. In verse 16, he says, The scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with tax collectors and sinners, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? These Pharisees were the religious people, the moral people, and they weren't happy about who Jesus was associating with. Why does he eat with them? He should know better. Doesn't he know who they are, what they're like, what they do, where they hang out? Doesn't he know that they don't keep all the religious rules But Jesus, when he heard it, said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus, who are you and why are you here? I came for the sick. I came for sinners. I came as the great physician, as a healer. That's why I'm here. I've got a medical visa. I came to heal the broken. Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Do we really expect doctors to only hang around with healthy people? Of course not. That wouldn't make any sense. Doctors have to associate with sick people because that is their calling and their mission. Jesus says, I'm the great physician. I came to heal the sick. I came to heal those who know that they are sick and long to be healed. So the question for us, for each of us is, Do we think of ourselves as being healthy or as being sick? Is it only the tax collectors and the sinners who are sick? And the answer is no. Actually, the Pharisees, who are the religious leaders here, they're sick too, but they don't realize it. And this is why their situation is so dangerous. Because if you know you're sick, then you might eventually go to the doctor to get what you need to be healed, but if you don't believe you're sick, you'll never go to the doctor and you'll eventually just die. But no one goes to the doctor until they've given up on their own ability to heal themselves. And we don't go to the doctor for advice. We go to the doctor for healing, but we can't be healed unless we admit that we are Sick, And that's really difficult for some of us to do, to admit that we have need, a need that we can't fix. Because we're so performance-oriented that admitting weakness can be so, so threatening. The Pharisees think that they are righteous, but they're really self-righteous. They look at the tax collectors and the sinners, and they point out all of their flaws. They can clearly see what's wrong with all those people out there what they're doing wrong, but they see themselves as being different, as better, as more deserving, and they don't want to be associated with those people over there. And yet at another point, Jesus can look at religious people like them. In Matthew 21, he says, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Who are the people that are attracted to Jesus in the Bible? The people that have it all together? No, it's the people who are broken, who know that they are sick. The people who think they have it all together are the ones who are grumpy. They're frustrated. They're the ones that are hanging outside the party and being judgmental. The people who are around Jesus all the time are the outsiders, the outcasts, the marginalized. Some of you have probably been turned off from Christianity and the church because you've seen it or it's given the impression that it's just a bunch of good people telling each other how to be better. And maybe some of you have experienced hypocrisy in the church. Maybe you've experienced the church as being angry or judgmental. Not this church, but some church out there. Of course not this church. Um, But you've experienced the church or Christians always pointing the finger at bad people as though That's what Jesus came to do and expects his followers to do. But in the church, we believe and we confess this morning together out loud that we're the bad people. Jesus doesn't welcome us to the party because we've got it all together, not because of our performance. The church isn't for perfect people because really there aren't any perfect people. And so we should be striving together to communicate that the church is a place where it's okay to not be okay. Because none of us really is okay in and of ourselves. We're people who know that we're sinners. We know that we need Jesus. And the thing to notice here is that Jesus doesn't ask or make the tax collectors and sinners clean up their act before he invites them to the feast, before he's willing to eat with them. And we believe that we're welcomed by grace, not when we've cleaned ourselves up, not when we've fixed our problems, not when we've gotten our act together and stopped doing this or that, not after we've proved how serious we are about keeping all of the rules. Jesus invites sinners like us to his party. And does that mean that Jesus doesn't care about sin and wrong? No, absolutely not. But it means that Jesus' goal isn't behavior modification, but it's actually transforming our hearts, changing us from the inside out. When Jesus associates with the tax collectors and sinners like us, he communicates love and acceptance, and that's actually what will change our hearts. Not condemnation and judgment, but, but acceptance and grace. It's the love of Jesus that will actually lead him to give his life for people like you and like me. The fact that he came to die for the ungodly. What would it mean if you really believed that? That God loved you when you were ungodly? When you were unlovely? That God sent his son in order to rescue and welcome you to a feast? If we really believe that, that's what changes our hearts. And it changes our actions, not condemnation and rejection. And so that should be a model for how we relate to other sick people. I wonder if it's possible that sometimes our disdain for people that we maybe don't agree with, maybe people who are clearly doing things that are not right, maybe our disdain for people with particular lifestyles or political or religious beliefs is maybe born out of a deep insecurity within our own hearts. And how might we view others differently or relate to them differently or speak about them differently if we ourselves were unshakably sure that Jesus deeply loves us in a way that we didn't earn, we don't deserve, but we can't get away from? You don't get to come to the feast by being good enough, but when you taste the grace and forgiveness of Jesus, it actually does something inside of you that makes you want to follow him and makes you want to welcome other people like you to the feast. And that feast is is a picture, an image in the Bible of what God is ultimately doing in this world. In the Bible, we're given imagery of the feast as being a place with the best food, where the mountains are dripping with wine, where people are full of joy. It's a picture of salvation and you, no matter who you are, are invited to it, to enjoy it. That's why Jesus came. That is why Jesus came. Visa, to throw an amazing eternal party and invite undeserving people to come and enjoy the feast. And because that's why he came, Those who follow him, the church, are called to be a community that's the most welcoming community in the world, a community of people that doesn't have it all together, where we know we need to be forgiven and healed, but we're confident that Jesus deeply loves us. And when we're secure in that love, then we become freed up to reach out and welcome others who are unlovely in so many ways. So, because Jesus welcomes us by grace, we're called to continue to reach out and welcome others in to taste and see that he is good. So let's continue to do that together. Continue to pray that Jesus would be at work through our communities together, welcoming others to the feast. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you are the God of endurance and encouragement And we ask that you would allow us to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together we might with one voice glorify you, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And would you help us to welcome one another as Jesus has welcomed us for the glory of God. We pray this in his name. Amen.
1: Amen. You know, one of the challenges of this passage and of the gospel is that the more that we feel like we have to lose, the harder sometimes it feels like it is to follow Jesus and to lay down our lives, to lose it in order that we might gain true life. But one of the beautiful things about the gospel is that the invitation of the gospel is not that Jesus says, why don't you first show me that you're willing to give up your life In order for me to love you. (laughs) That's not the gospel. The gospel that we taste and see when we come and eat this bread and drink this wine is that Jesus says, Yes, I'm asking you to give up everything to follow me. But first, I'm gonna lay my life down for you. So you've come this morning and you find yourself holding on tightly to things that you are afraid to hold on to loosely for the sake of following Christ, what Jesus invites us to is to taste and see, to even physically take into our bodies the reminder that he's laid himself down for us. It is his love that compels us to give up what we hold on to so tightly. If you're here this morning, and even if you're wrestling with letting go of things in order to follow Jesus, I invite you to come. If you come this morning and you're like, not a chance. (laughs) I do not want to give up anything to follow Jesus. I'm not going to do that. Then I would say, maybe don't come and take this, (laughs) because that doesn't seem consistent at all with what we're doing here. What we're doing here is receiving from God His gift of love, but if you come and you're like I, I I believe, but only like this tiny little bit, (laughs) then please come. This is the table for those who have weak faith, who maybe six and and three quarters day a week (laughs) hold tightly to things, but you long for Jesus to be the thing that you follow wholeheartedly. And if that's you this morning, beloved, come and taste. Come and see that it is Jesus who has laid down his life for you. He is the initiator, not you. And that is good news, that he has moved towards us in love. On The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is the blood of the covenant. Oh, I I did that backwards. (laughs) This is my body, broken for you. In a like manner, he took a cup of wine, and after blessing it, it, said, this is the blood of the covenant, shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. And He said this, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until I come to drink of it with you in my Father's kingdom. This is a promise that Jesus has invited us to the party and that he's coming back to make us whole, to make us people who aren't split anymore between the things that we're pursuing every day and pursuing him, but who are whole, knowing Jesus, loving him, and receiving his love wholly. Let me pray for us as we come to take these elements. Uh, Jesus, we come this morning as people who are uh, incredibly challenged by um, this passage and by what you've come to do, (laughs) that you have come to lay down your life for us and that you have done it before we even gave thought to you. And even now in our daily lives, when we give no thought to you, you are still moving towards us with your sacrificial love. would you melt our resistance this morning? Would you teach us not to be people who try to conjure a melting of our own hearts, but instead who come to you receiving the love that melts our resistance in Jesus? We pray this for your kingdom's sake and for our good. Amen.